Well, hello. It is wonderful to see so many faces of people whom I love. Um, I remember last summer I opened with uh, the question, is there anywhere you'd rather be? It's such a joy to uh, begin our day corporately worshiping the Lord and to end it as well. These evening services are a blessing. Let me uh, open up in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, calm my nerves tonight. I pray that you would keep my mouth free from error. I pray that you'd be glorified in everything that is done tonight. I just thank you for this opportunity to study your word together. pray that we would not take it for granted. Let me pray. Amen. All right, so in studying for this lesson, I came across a sermon by R.C. Sproul. And he started the sermon with a question. He said, if someone walked up to you on the street today and asked, what is the kingdom of God? How many of you would struggle to answer that question? Maybe about 10% of the congregation raised their hand. And he said, well, good for you. We're going to talk about that today. And for the rest of you liars, please listen up. <laughs> so what is the kingdom of God? Today our focus is thy kingdom come. What do we mean when we pray thy kingdom come? And I'll start with the first question I had, which is that if we trust that God is sovereign over all things, if we trust that God is in control, can we not say that all things are the kingdom of God? In which case, when we pray, thy kingdom come, do we just mean, let the universe exist as it always has and do your thing, God, and not actually pray anything meaningful? I can actually support this biblically if I chose to. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him, that being Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and inv invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So a question that can be asked is, why on earth would we pray for the Lord's kingdom to come if he's in control of every kingdom that has already existed? Proverbs says that he controls the hearts of kings like a channel of water. So it's important that we take into account all of Scripture before we make a decision. Because within Scripture we see that, yes, God is king of the universe. He is Lord of the heavens. But he is, lords of people. he is the Lord of people in very specific ways. We'll see that in the Old Testament. So God chose specifically the descendants of Abraham to be his people. Was Lord sovereign over the Canaanites? Indeed he was. But he chose Abraham's descendant to be his people. Deuteronomy 7, 6. Moses is addressing the Israelites before they enter into the promised land. And what does he say? He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are in the face of the earth. So God chooses here Abraham's descendants to be his people in a specific way that he does not choose the Canaanites to be his people. Uh, furthermore, God is king of Israel more specifically in 1 Samuel 8-7. This is the uh, scene where the Israelites demand a king. They wish to be like the nations around them. And they go to Samuel and say, bring us a king. And the, uh, Samuel goes to the Lord. And this is what the Lord says. He says, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So the first thing we need to note when we ask, thy kingdom come, is we're not just saying a general God, let the universe continue to operate as it has. Control the stars as you have. As you have. We mean a specific way in which God is king. God is uh, king over a specific people in a specific way. So how do we understand this biblically? God is sovereign over all nations. 
But at one time he was specifically king over Israel in a way that he wasn't king over the Canaanites. Well, to answer this question, I'm going to paraphrase R.C. Sproul. He says the following, The kingdom of God is not just the realm where God reigns, but where he saves. When we speak about the kingdom of God, we don't just mean God being in control, but God saving. God saving. And to illustrate this, I'm going to go to an Old Testament passage. So uh, you may want to turn here. This is Hosea 1, 6 through 9. My goal here is not to describe the entire book of Hosea and all of the intricacies there, but just to illustrate one point. So first, Hosea is a prophet of God. He's commanded to marry uh, Gomer, a um, wife of, I believe, whoredom is what my translation says. And she is unfaithful to him and conceives children. This is what the book of Hosea says in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. So she, that being Gomer, conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. My purpose in bringing up this verse is not to describe everything in the book of Isaiah and what all this means, but just to illustrate one point. Here, northern Israel is described as not the Lord's people, and he is described as, uh, the northern Israel is described as not being saved by God. So who is in the kingdom of God? Those whom God saves. That is who is in the kingdom of God. Uh, another verse popular in Christmas time is Zechariah 9.9. 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the coming of Christ is described as Christ having salvation. That's what it means to be in God's kingdom, to have salvation. So, so far, we've spent the entirety of our scripture verses here in the Old Testament. So one can ask, were they in the kingdom of God? Well, God had certainly chosen his people, but Israel's kings, like all kings who are merely human, were failures. They failed to save his people. They could not save them from their sins. Uh, when God speaks to David and he promises the coming of the Messiah, the, uh, this Davidic covenant, he says here, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." The kingdom of God was not established with Abraham, but with Christ. Salvation comes from Christ alone. Hebrews makes this explicit. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The greatest of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, says his ministry, John 1.29, The next day, he, being John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where does salvation come from? It comes from Christ alone. The kingdom of God is inaugurated by Christ. Christ makes this explicit in his own ministry. He says in Luke 4, verses 42 and 43, when a people wish for him to stay with him, 
he departs and goes to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Why was Christ sent to earth? It was to establish his kingdom, to save a people to himself. So all of this is just the prologue. When we say thy kingdom come, what do we mean by God's kingdom? God's kingdom is composed of the people for whom God has subdued to himself, whom he rules, and whom he defends. This is foreshadowed by kings in the Old Testament, but it's inaugurated in Christ's message and atoning work on the cross. So when we speak of the kingdom of God, we mean the people that Christ has saved to himself. So now I can actually answer the question. What do we do when we pray, thy kingdom come? Well, the first is the most obvious. Since the kingdom of God consists of those whom Christ has saved, when we say, thy kingdom come, we're praying for people to be brought into the kingdom of God. We're praying for the salvation of the lost. If you model your prayers after the Lord's Prayer, and you wonder, when do I pray for missionaries? When do I pray for my lost friends? It's in thy kingdom come. This is the part of uh, the kingdom that we have a hand to play. God works through, his, uh, through believers, through the word, in order to bring his kingdom uh, into being, in order to grow his kingdom. So the Great Commission, Matthew 18, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the first thing that we do when we pray thy kingdom come is we pray that God would grow his kingdom through evangelism. Now I have a slight diversion that I feel I need to make because Christ makes this caveat as well. So there's a caveat. Although we grow the kingdom of heaven through our evangelism, we cannot build the kingdom of heaven here on earth. It is not of this world. Uh, there's a scene in Luke 17 when the Pharisees, always as genuine as they are, are asking Christ, when will the kingdom of God come? When is the kingdom of heaven going to come? And he answers them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is where Christ is and where he has saved people to himself. He goes on to tell the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. So the temptation, at least for me, is to think the kingdom of God is this church building. I'm looking at a church family whom I love very dearly. And I can think this is the kingdom of God in the sense that we as this group are the kingdom of God. Those outside this small C church must be outside the kingdom of God. Those outside my denomination are outside the kingdom of God. But I need to remember to not commit the sin of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, they sought to grow, uh, build a tower up to heaven. They sought we can reach heaven on our own. The temptation for me is to put heaven and bring it down in my own image to earth. To say, here, this nation, this people, this family, this is the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is not of this world. The kingdom of God is where Christ has saved people to himself. 
Christ makes this explicit when speaking to Pilate. Uh, Pilate is inquiring about the kingdom, and Jesus answers, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So this caveat is just to emphasize, I guess I'm preaching to myself here, that when we grow the kingdom of heaven, it's through evangelism, not through legislation, not through um, catechism, but through Christ working in people's hearts. All right. So the first way, thing that we pray when we pray thy kingdom come is for evangelism, that the lost would be brought into the kingdom of heaven. The second thing that we pray uh, is perhaps one of the more uncomfortable things to do. If you go to your favorite uh, spot, uh, normally we'd say the bar or maybe a restaurant. For me, it'd be the board game store. Well, you go in and I say, I want to talk to you or hear about what you think about God. Most people would have something to say to you about God. People have thoughts about God. If I say, I want to speak to you about Christ, well, some would have some thoughts about Christ. Some might be uncomfortable. But if you want to make most people uncomfortable, you say, let's talk about Satan and his influence in the world. Perhaps it's a Western idea. Perhaps it's the way we've grown up in affluence. But I don't talk about Satan very much. But we need to remember that when the kingdom of God comes, when we are delivered to the kingdom of God, we were not in a spiritual vacuum. We were not neutral, and God chose us to uh, his side. But rather, when the kingdom of God grows, the kingdom of Satan is destroyed in that way. So when we pray the kingdom of God come, thy kingdom come, we are praying that Satan's kingdom would be destroyed. There is much martial language in the New Testament about uh, the Christian life. Ephesians 6.12, when the Apostle Paul speaks about the armor of God, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh or blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I feel that much of the uh, misdirected ideas we have of building the kingdom of God through a human institution is the flip side of neglecting the spiritual component. There is a spiritual battle when the kingdom of God grows. There is an evil kingdom that all unbelievers are subjugated to until Christ ransoms them back to himself. Christ himself in John 12 refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. We are not in a vacuum where Christ saves some, where there is no, there is no spiritual um, leverage in either direction. But if you are not in Christ, you are with your father, the devil. So when we pray that Satan's kingdom would be destroyed, there's a lot of things implied in there. And I want to start first within the body of Christ. So within the body of Christ, we are warned repeatedly in the New Testament to avoid division at all times. Satan works through division. I've seen uh, many churches split for a variety of reasons, and I've noticed, uh, certainly someone smarter than I has done a study, but when a church splits in two, the two halves rarely sum to the size of the whole. People are lost in division. Through division, churches lose um, their numbers and families are lost from the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 16, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrines that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites and, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 
When we pray thy kingdom come, we're praying against Satan's kingdom and the divisive work that he does in the, in the church. So that's inside. We can also talk about outside. It's easy to talk about the devil's work outside the church because there's a lot of it. So Romans 1 talks about the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Satan is suppressing the knowledge of God uh, in unbelievers. Uh, Paul goes on to say, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Idolatry is very alive and well in the world, not only in our own hearts, but specifically outside God's kingdom, and that is Satan's kingdom. Wherever an idol is worshipped beyond God, that is where Satan's kingdom is. One of the most striking verses referring to Satan being the god of this world is 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, Paul here is speaking of unbelievers, he says, The god of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When we pray thy kingdom come, we pray that the God of this world, Satan, the great deceiver, would no longer deceive the minds or blind the minds of unbelievers. This is challenging in the sense that we can't save anyone. Not only do we lack the power to save anyone by our own works, only Christ's work can do that, but furthermore, Satan is blinding the minds of unbelievers. So when we pray thy kingdom come, we pray against Satan's kingdom. And lastly, when we pray against Satan's kingdom, we pray that justice would be carried out in the world. Satan comes to destroy, steal, and kill. Proverbs refers to when justice is done, it's a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Outside of the kingdom of God, there is gross injustice. A Puritan writer says, uh, makes the point that Satan is the worst of all um, slave masters. He rewards his most loyal subjects with the worst torment. So when we pray thy kingdom come, we pray first that unbelievers would be brought into the kingdom of God, and we pray second that the kingdom of Satan would be destroyed. And now we get to my favorite parts. When we pray that the kingdom of God would come, we pray that God's kingdom would grow within us and also that he would come. So the Puritan theologians distinguished uh, two types of the kingdom coming. So they really are the same. Uh, but they describe the kingdom of grace, which is God's kingdom working in our minds, working in our hearts, in our relationship. And they refer to the kingdom of glory, which is Christ's final revealing. Uh, we can think of our life here as like watching a sunrise. We can see the light coming. We can see God working in our lives. In moments like this, when we sing his praises, I feel like we can almost taste heaven, but we can't see it yet. That's the kingdom of glory. We can see the light. I'm sorry, that's the kingdom of grace, where we can see the light. The kingdom of glory is when the sun rises. That's what I'm waiting for. So we'll start here with the kingdom of glory. Okay, I'm, kingdom of grace. We'll get there. So we start with the kingdom of grace. So when you pray thy kingdom come, we're praying that God would change us. When we are saved, most of us sin a lot more than we'd like to. 
So when we pray that kingdom come, we're praying not only that God would bring unbelievers into the kingdom, but that we would be transformed to the image of God. Paul says in Ephesians 4, it describes uh, the change in life as putting on a new self. So here in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The kingdom of God would still come through you even if you never saved a single soul. Even if all your evangelism failed, when Christ matures you and conforms you to the image of his Son, that's the kingdom of God growing within you. And that's what we pray, thy kingdom come. Uh, the um, English writer C.S. Lewis and both the second century Christian origin, origin pronounce that right. When they speak of the kingdom of God, this is all that they focused on, surprisingly. Their focus was not evangelism, not the return of Christ, but the, re, but the growth in uh, the, trans, the, uh, the transformation of our minds and the renewing of our minds. So when we pray that the kingdom of grace would come, thy kingdom come, we're praying that we would die more and more unto sin and live unto righteousness. Paul in Romans 6 tells us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ, that we would be set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness. Unfortunately, we're less willing to be slaves of righteousness as we'd like. And we pray thy kingdom come, come within our minds that we would be desirous of good things. And the last thing we pray when we pray thy kingdom come, and this is the one that, um, frankly, it makes me cry a little bit. We pray that the kingdom of glory would come. I've had more failures in evangelism than I have successes. I've had more fails morally in the kingdom of grace than I've had successes. But despite all that, we can look forward to the kingdom of glory when Christ will come. So what do we look forward to in the kingdom of glory? I can remember as a young man thinking, I suppose I'm still a young man, but when I was a younger man, when I was a younger man, thinking, Christ, don't come back quite yet, because it sounds like all we do is sing over there, and there's a new Star Wars movie coming out. <laughs> we can wait a little while. But as I've grown older, as I've become more accustomed to what this world is and it has to offer, I can say, come, Lord Jesus, quickly. And the reasons for that are many. I'll illustrate a few. When Christ comes back, he will judge the quick and the dead. I look forward to that because Christ, in his judgment, he will give us what we deserve. And I look forward to passing through the fire and all my worthless chaff, which consists of most of my body being burned away. And the true Josiah that Christ has saved, that the Holy Spirit is dwelling within me, will be refined like gold. I look forward to that. So 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We can look forward to that where Christ will um, renew us in our bodies. And we can also look forward to the judgment of the wicked. I had a very godly mechanic friend, and he oftentimes said, every bad thing anyone has ever done to you, either Christ paid for on the cross, or they will pay for that in the future. So there's no need to be resentful. And while the reality of hell is a difficult thing to come across, it's something that uh, I would like to say, if I was God, I wouldn't have made a hell. The truth is, 
there are a lot of evil actions that need to be punished. And I look forward to Christ being the righteous judge there. I look forward to the kingdom of glory and Christ's judgment. The second thing we look forward to is to be delivered from this world of futility and the bodies of death which we currently possess. I can't say this any better than the Apostle Paul, so I'll just go straight to it. Romans 8, 22 through 25. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is not, the hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we await for it with patience. My parents will be 70 next year, and in my mind, they're still 45. And that's something that frightens me a little bit. Uh, my wife has an autoimmune disease, and so many uh, friends and loved ones are suffering from physical ailments. And I look forward to that kingdom of glory when our bodies will be renewed, will be delivered from these bodies of death. Paul says further in 2 Corinthians 5, For while we are still in this tent, this temporary dwelling place, earth that we have, we groan, being burdened not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So when we pray thy kingdom come, we're praying for deliverance from this world of futility. All the work that we do for, for little gain as a result of the curse, as a result of the fall, we look forward to the abolishment of that. We look forward to new bodies that no longer cause us pain. And the last thing that we pray for, and again, this is just a small smattering here, is that we would have the full enjoying of God for all eternity. Perhaps my favorite of the Westminster Catechism questions is question 38. Uh, what do believers have to look forward at death? Answer, the full enjoying of God for all eternity. As I've grown older, I've seen that the world doesn't have to offer what my soul really longs for, but God does. God does. So we'll leave here with just this single uh, passage. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Feel free to turn there. This is one worth highlighting. So the Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard with a loud voice, From the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. When you pray that kingdom come, we're praying not only for this life. We're praying for the further life, the next life, the better life that we'll extend for all eternity. And we'll be our true selves. And that's what I'm most excited for. When we pray thy kingdom come, we pray for evangelism. 
We pray that death, destruction, Satan kingdom would be destroyed. We pray for right relationship in our immediate um, relationships. But ultimately, for me, what I'm looking for most is that new heaven and that new earth, a new body. So in summary, I can't summarize it any matter better than the Westminster Divines, so I'm just going to plagiarize them. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom would be destroyed, that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the, glory, that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love your kingdom. We see uh, glimpses of it now, Lord. I pray that when we uh, pursue evangelism, Lord, it would not be out of a sense of guilt. It would not be out of a sense of um, allegiance to God, but that it would be out of growing your kingdom, out of seeing your kingdom grow. I pray that we would pray earnestly and fight earnestly against Satan's devices. I pray that we would seek for the destruction of injustice. We pray for the enlightening of the minds of our neighbors and our friends of the world into the knowledge of you. I pray, Lord, that our church and the church would be beacons of the kingdom of glory to come in this kingdom of grace. I pray that we would be earnest in our seeking of you and of your glory. And ultimately, Lord, we know that in all of our failings, in all of our successes, they will all pale in accordance to your beauty when it comes. I pray that we would earnestly seek your kingdom, and we would say every day, come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.